Welcome to the Week in IndyCar, brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets. We're jumping right into part one. Yes, part one of two, because you sent in a lot of questions, and they were awesome. Q&A coming out of the Portland Grand Prix. (laughs) Y'all have sent in, I just counted, 5,226 words worth of questions. Uh, more than 120 across Twitter and Facebook, and making a return this week after a almost summer-long hiatus, the Reddit IndyCar Group. Thank you all there for sending in some great questions. That is a lot. That's who we are this week. So I'm going to do my best to answer all. I've lumped many together because many of the things, there was, there was a few crashes. Don't know if you noticed that at Portland. Uh, there are some other things, too, schedule-related bits. Uh, General Graham Rahal, uh, hashtag Graham Bam, as one listener sent in. Uh, There's a few questions about that, Um, all kinds of stuff. So lots of great questions. Going to get to as many as I can, as quickly as I can, without feeling super rushed. Wanted to mention here a couple things before we get rolling. Had an amazing, amazing time Saturday night with our live Weekend IndyCar show in Portland on the Cooper Tires stage. Biggest to date last year my guess is we had 100 plus people this year 150 plus wasn't a huge stake of land that we had to do it on the cooper tire stage which is just awesome but it was it was a blast it was really truly a blast right after the show speaking with my main man at cooper tires who supports us is a great idea for a new show And we're going to try it out after uh, the season completes here. Once we get into the off-season, completely different format. I love the idea. I've even come up with a name for it. I'm not going to mention it yet. Uh, It's still racing, so all that. Nothing's changing on that front. But it's a radical, radical departure. And if you all like it, we're going to probably do it a couple times a week just to add in among the, uh, the other shows that we do. So really stoked about that. Let's get to torontomotorsports.com, which I mentioned, one of our great partners. Last week, they said, hey, since you have Connor Daly on as your guest, let's do a Toronto Daily. A Toronto Daily? All right, I'm drunk already. Let's do a Connor Daly prize pack giveaway. Give folks a chance to choose between a few things, but primarily it's a torontomotorsports.com Roger Warwick design Connor Daly t-shirt, some stickers, I'm not sure what all else they're going to throw in, but that is indeed the gift being offered to the person whose question last week, while Connor Daly was our guest, who sent in the question that had the most likes, had the most reaction, and I'm stoked to say that's my pal Jeremiah Morell. So Jeremiah, your question of, does Connor have to have a seat fit at both Carlin and Andretti, or does he just carry it with him along with his helmet? Show up at the track like a Boy Scout, always prepared. Or at this point, does every team in the paddock already have a seat ready for Connor Daly? And so, funnily enough, he needed it, Jeremiah. So it was a perfectly timed question. Uh, That question had the most likes. So drop me a note here, a direct message or something, and uh, I'll get you connected with the good folks at torontomotorsports.com, and they will send you some freebies your way celebrating Indiana's own Connor Daly. Also need to mention that along with your question there, after having him on the show 
And then I think a day or two later, my colleague Robin Miller breaking the news internationally that Connor would be in the car because Marcus Erickson was heading to Belgium to possibly drive in place of Kimi Raikkonen. Saw Connor Friday morning at the track, and he said, oh, by the way, yeah, I knew that when we did the show. I just couldn't tell you. I'm like, you little dickhead. Of course you tell Miller, not me. I see how it is. All right, Daly, I see how it is. So that was good for him, obviously. But if we're talking about um, observations from the weekend, which I mentioned, and some of you all said, yeah, share some thoughts, maybe stuff you haven't written about up front before we get going. I'll do that here. And one of them was on this very topic of Connor Daly and Marcus Erickson. And my first big takeaway at Portland was the racing gods do indeed love irony. So Marcus missed an IndyCar race at a circuit where the Aerosmith Peterson cars proved to be very competitive, then ended up sitting on the sidelines all weekend in Belgium, was then part of obviously a dreadfully sad event where young Antoine Hubert was killed. And then back in the States, Connor Daly, standing in for Marcus, turned in just as many laps at the Portland Grand Prix as Marcus did the Belgian Grand Prix. That being two drivers, zero laps, and many miles traveled for no particular gain. That was sad. Uh, I guess the only positive to find in the experience was Daly's pace in qualifying where he qualified the number seven Honda directly behind his teammate and friend and former landlord, James Hinchcliffe, and the number five Honda. So of the whole thing, knowing that he didn't make it out of turn one, didn't complete a single lap, at least we know that for those at the team who are still evaluating drivers for next year, and there's some questions about that coming up here, uh, y'all have sent in. I would say that Connor definitely made it known that from everything we've seen him do this year from team to team on ovals, a rocket at Indy with Andretti Autosport delivering Carlin Racing's best result of the year, a sixth on an oval as well. The team that's not really considered to be a threat on ovals to see him within zero point, almost nothing of Hinch and qualifying as more or less a last-minute stand-in, I would say that should impress folks at the Aero McLaren SP team, also known as, thanks to our reader, I'm sorry, listener, our reader, good Lord, I sound like Miller. Thanks to our listener, Jim Johnstone, who came up with SPAM, the acronym SPAM, which Miller stole and then didn't attribute to me or Jim or anyone uh, on the broadcast. Um, they should be paying attention because I think Connor Daly would be a pretty smart person to consider for next year. Also knowing that he does have a little bit of backing to help as well. A few other things here. Uh, my pal Tom Schreier asked this question. It actually leads off the Q&A, but uh, this is my lead-off question or note to myself. Is there a team in IndyCar that has been more hated over a two- or three-week stretch than Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan racing? If you think about what happened at Pocono with Takuma Sato, all the cars that were taken out there, all the blame that went his way, then you think about Graham, unfortunately, hashtag Graham Bam, at Portland. Just saying, if we're talking about heat, 
is there any team you can think of in such a short amount of time <laughs> where its drivers have just turned the rest of the paddock into their <sighs> there's not going to be a lot of christmas cards flowing their way based on um, behavior on track and mistakes on track recently you can throw in some other mistakes too altogether yeah uh, it it can't be a whole lot of fun had a couple of you ask about this and thank you for being longtime readers because i haven't really handed this good little thing of mine out for a while but i have indeed been giving out the golden bowling ball award for most of the decade i don't remember when i came up with it might have been late 2000s at speed might have been early in this decade. Regardless, few have done a better job of earning it than Graham Rahal last weekend. Uh, as one listener did write in, the hashtag Graham Bam was sheer perfection. And then for the first time, I believe, in this award's history, a second but lower grade version, the silver bowling ball, absolutely goes to Ryan Hunter Ray. Now, I think if we're talking execution, I think Ryan definitely did a better job than Graham. Graham hit one driver, which then triggered a big, big mess. But the actual original hit on our man, Zach Veach, it wasn't it wasn't something that made the crowd stand up and go, ooh, just bold to strike. Hunter Ray. I mean, he drilled that sucker. <laughs> he broke that bowling pin in half by comparison. Unfortunately, our dear guest, Jack Harvey, who gave us some great stuff about that, too. So, yeah, a golden bowling ball and a silver bowling ball in the same event. I mean, yeah, it's good stuff there. A couple of other general things that come to mind out of just sheer curiosity. I was looking at. Marshall Pruitt podcast statistics over the weekend noticed that finally after sitting in number five for most of the year, Sweden, the country of Sweden has moved ahead of Australia and now sits number four in terms of international downloads. So big thumbs up to our man, Felix Rosenquist and also Marcus Erickson. I don't know what's going on down under. I mean, you've got Will Power, obviously, won the race. I realize that Scott Dixon's a Kiwi, born in Australia, though, but just surprised that two of the series' bigger stars not generating more traffic than the rather small country of Sweden with two rookies in the field. So just saying, Aussies, you might need to step up a little bit here. Uh, let's see. Another note that I made was, sadly, Porton. Portland took back the gift that it gave to Dixon and handed it off to New Garden. Um, yeah, hated seeing what happened at Gateway for Dixon with the hole through his radiator. And then again here, just hated seeing it for the sake of not so much Dixon, the individual, just I'm a big fan of having as many drivers with a realistic or semi-realistic shot of being in the title hunt down to the wire and just hate that we took one off the board, so we're just down to three. Again, no, there's a mathematical chance. There's no practical chance it will happen, though. Uh, other interesting things that I saw and thought of, notice that Max Chilton jumped from his car on Sunday and was just yelling at Carlin team manager Colin Hale openly on pit lane, directly below uh, some of the hospitality-type 
um, fan suites. It's not even suites, just grandstands with a little canopy over them. Um, can't say exactly what the topic of discussion was, nor am I saying Max was in the wrong. I have no, nothing to say in terms of that. It just seemed to be one of those things that knowing that it was a public scenario and there are folks truly standing up looking right down on top of the team while it's happening, um, that seemed a little rich. Also noticed down uh, in that end of pit lane that our young man, Renus VK, the winner of the Saturday Indy Lights race in Portland and also should end up being a very strong runner-up in points to champion-elect, I guess we could call him, Oliver Askew, spent the race on the Ed Carpenter Racing timing stand in Ed Jones' pits. Uh, his parents were down there the whole time, too. I'm going to write about that here shortly, so I may be mentioning this in the podcast after it's, after it's been written about, but there would be a reason for that, friends. Uh, Felix Rosenquist looked really scrappy and just, again, reminded how far the team has come in a span of one year to where, as Felix is getting further into his rookie year, it definitely is looking like, yes, we have a reason to take account of both cars, and they haven't had that for a while. It was always, it has been Dixon. It's always been Dixon in recent years. The one going forward, the one being the threat, the fact that they can now legitimately expect to have both cars in the hunt. That's the whole reason they brought the kid in. Uh, Saw Zach Veach before the race. Just great to see him smiling. Looks like he's having a lot of fun again. Know that he wasn't having fun. A lot of fun this year. And so there's some good stuff going on there. I guess of everything else that jumps out here, the rest is going to be reserved for comment and analysis and whatnot in your questions. And so with that said, let's get going here with our man, Tom Schreier, who kicks things off. With an awesome opener for the week, one that's very apropos. My question and comment. Do you think the RLL drivers have a secret championship going where they score points taking out cars and crew members? Oh, as I said a moment ago, you would think that there was some sort of intent here, Tom. We know there isn't. We know that Graham certainly did not intend to wipe out as many cars, well, any cars, but as do as much damage as, as he did. We know that Takuma did not mean to trigger a big melee. We do know that Takuma did not mean to mow down crew members at Texas, if I remember correctly. Yeah, but... Sometimes this way things falls, man. I mean, it's weird when you have one team that is seemingly the lightning rod for a lot of back-to-back or seemingly back-to-back problems uh, that affect others. But anyways, coincidence for sure. Um, Just, yeah, unfortunate that this is falling in their direction. Let's go to the other question Tom has. He says, what do you think about those who said, This last week, that Sato's victory at Gateway was redemption for his driving at Pocono. He says, every time I heard or read that silliness, it made me grind my teeth and my jaw is sore now. Ridiculous. You and I might have had the same exact take on things, Tom. Uh, Takuma, yeah, Takuma did not want to own anything from 
Pocono. I've had some interesting conversations with drivers since last week who said the footage that was used by Takuma, the IndyCar-specific overhead camera, not the broadcast camera, that he used to portray things. He said, honestly, we have found, and this is nothing specific about Pocono, just since it was introduced, we have found that that camera is all but useless. That angle is all but useless in trying to determine anything uh, to really correlate space, time, or anything else. So at least the feedback that I got from people who spend a lot of time observing their own driving have said, yeah, uh, it's good to have, but we don't really look at that as some sort of truly rock-solid concrete resource. So knowing that Takuma pointed to that to say, hey, see, wasn't me. I was blameless. I know we got into this last week and the week before, I think, and we're not going to rehash much beyond a couple more seconds worth here, Tom. But I will say that Takuma fought everybody very hard to insist that he was not at fault, did nothing wrong, Everybody else moved but him, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, I think he's still somewhat in the minority on that belief within the paddock. Having been there in Portland and listened to a lot of people share that, people whose opinions that I trust and value, um, yeah, so that's that. Those who felt that there was some huge redemptive thing that took place at Gateway by winning – I didn't see that. I felt good for him, feeling good. And after a very hard week where a lot of, honestly, some kind of mean things were said as well, uh, I know that I saw and had some folks send some things my way that were, without question, 100% racist, purely racist. Japanese, does not to drive, can't see, pick some of these worn-out stereotypes going back long before I was born. Um, Yeah, so did feel bad for him receiving that kind of stupidity. But, yeah, as we know, and we're just we're trying to be as honest as we can here, uh, when Colton Herta won the Circuit of the Americas race, it's not because he was leading and dominating. A yellow fell in a certain way that penalized those who had not pitted, rewarded those uh, who got in before it took place, and boom, the outcome of the race was shuffled. He won the race, did a great job, was very competitive, but was not the guy leading all day. Certainly capitalized on what happened, though. Takuma, when he won last year at Portland, same exact scenario. Takuma, when he won at Gateway, same exact scenario. Yellow allowed that win to happen. Doesn't mean it's any less valuable, just means that it's not as if Takuma had a horrible wreck reduced, addled, you name it, Pocono race. Then one week later, drove to the front, won, redeemed himself, and or put all that stuff behind him through mastery of the race. Was in a very good position to capitalize on a yellow, did, and won the race. Very cool. I just didn't see the redemptive timeline, uh, didn't see the redemptive drive or anything else, Tom, just like you. Kyle Brown says, should have asked us last week, where does Sato's gateway win rank among the willpower-style double birds to my critics' wins in IndyCar history? To Sato was unsurprisingly gracious in victory lane, but for hashtag me personally, thanks for using that correctly, Kyle. It would have been awesome 
if you did a heel turn in victory lane and called out Ron Hunter Ray and Rossi. I'm with you. Totally with you. I'm always for the heel turn. It, uh, just embrace that. Hey, to you suckers who said it was my fault, guess what? Suck my bleep. Just throw down. Double down. I mean, he would have been wrong in saying that, but regardless, I'm with you, Kyle. I mean, truly, take this in a very unexpected direction. Talk about all kinds of absolutely triple security in Portland to keep a lot of drivers uh, certainly at arm's length, if not more, from Tacoma. But yeah, the heel turn, that would have been a great call. Peter Nutt says, Graham Rahal has grown immensely as a person and a driver and owned up for his mistake. How does a driver achieve this? He says he's asking for his countryman, Max, for stopping. Uh, Love this. Yeah, Graham's certainly gotten older. Graham has gone through a lot of things that have forced him to grow up, forced him to accept a lot of things that he hasn't liked, reflected upon who he is as a person, changed for the better, I did find it interesting, though. There's a lot of folks, I shouldn't say a lot. I read a lot of comments. Doesn't mean that there are a lot of people saying it. But I did read a lot of comments. After Graham's bowling ball impression, that he owned up to it. And that Ryan Hunter Ray owned up to his. As if it mattered. (laughs) We saw it. We saw the mistake. You don't have to own up to it. it there was never a question. Th- truly. We, we, there was never a doubt if it was you. <laughs> so, the again, and I'm not making light of Graham or Ryan Hunter Ray owning up to things. I'm just saying that there was a little bit too much like, oh, well, he owned up to it and good on him. Was there anything else to do? For real. Did we think that there was a person on a grassy knoll who made the crashes happen and it wasn't really them and but oh they they finally raised their hand and admit it was that admitted it was them and oh thank goodness for finally settling that very, very murky dispute. What else were they gonna do? Both guys just wiped out people. There is never a question. They didn't have to say a word afterwards. We knew what they did. We knew they were sorry. Anyways, I just found that to be a little bit funny. Let's go to our man, Jameen Tuttle. Thanks for always sending in great stuff here. says, when you do have a mess, when there's no debate on blame, how does the paddock handle it? Take it out. Fight it out. Team A, give Team B new front suspension because we broke yours. Love this one, Jameen, because there's no set protocol. Drivers do not have to do anything. They don't have to apologize. They don't have to communicate with the driver they hit. They don't have to go over and say sorry to the mechanics who are going to have to fix a bunch of stuff. They don't have to go to the team owner and say, hey, sorry, just cost you a ton of money. There's no requirement or expectation for anyone to send a dollar across the way to help the other team. There's nothing. It's just truly, I guess, a little bit of whatever you feel is right. So we know after speaking with Jack Harvey, 
that Ryan Hunter Ray came over to apologize. Wasn't in the mood. Uh, they did connect by text later. RHR did apologize publicly on social media and all those things. But yeah, I mean, in the somewhat old days, you know, we, as Jack said, you know, uh, it's in his nature to want to scrap a little bit. If this was 20 ish years ago, 30 years ago, we might've seen that. And I don't know if there would have been a real consequence from it, uh, in terms of race stewards or otherwise, uh, 40, 50 years ago, I think fans would be disappointed if there weren't punches thrown, but it's not really like that these days. Um, in terms of teams giving one another things because their guy caused a problem. Yeah. Also just not a thing. Uh, crashes are factored into budgets and yeah, this is just kind of dealt on a case by case basis, but by and large, other than a driver feeling compelled, hopefully to maintain peace in the paddock driver to driver, uh, that really doesn't tend to extend beyond that. Let's go to Joe Izzo as we start to wind down on the crash bits and move into some others. It says, MP, using internet logic, Portland is obviously the most dangerous track. They couldn't get more than 14 seconds from green or even to turn two. So using IndyCar logic, it's off the schedule, right? Plus, it's a snoozer parade by the eyeball test. Yeah, completely. Uh, Portland's been dropped. Um, yeah. I don't know if you guys happen to see the race report video that I did with Seb and Robin Miller at the end of Sunday that went up on racer.com. Uh, obviously Joe's infusing plenty of sarcasm here. Um, I love this thing and, and I, we might have, uh, well, we do have a question or two here that I'll roll in actually that kind of brings in something that Joe's starting to bridge. Um, he's, this comes in from Justin Everett, who says, MP, given that two incidents occurred in turn one this year at Portland, do you think there is something about the design of that turn that creates an optical illusion of sorts that alters the driver's depth perception? Or do you feel both incidents were the result of drivers just being overambitious, trying to outbreak their competitor? Also says, glad to see you back at the track, and best wishes to you and your wife. Thanks, Justin. Uh, well, to the two of you guys, I would just say this. If you happen to catch that video, you will notice towards the end, as we were just starting to wind down the, I forget whether, I think it was the uh, USF 2000 race went off. And Seb and I and Robin watched, I don't know, 20-ish uh, open wheel cars go flying down the front straight, pile into turn one. All these are truly kids. You know, this is the bottom rung of the road to Indy the place where you'd expect the biggest screw-ups, the biggest mistakes. This is where you work out all the bad tendencies. This is where you, had a, you learn to do the basics, then refine them each step, each step of the ladder. Got through turn one with no problems. <laughs> Not a single issue. No contact, no bowling balls, no anything. So I just love the fact, guys, that when we started filming this, I don't know what it was 20 minutes after the race ended something like that uh we just finished the big cars the big race all the heroes champions indy 500 winner people getting paid a lot of money just knocking the crap out of each other no respect no anything 
And then you go to the kids, truly the youngest of all the kids who want to one day become IndyCar drivers, who are expected to just triple and fumble and fall and do the dumb things. And they just blow right through the chicane. No issues whatsoever. Nobody knocking into one another. Break, turn right, get over the curbing there, power away. All good, all clean, all clear. That, I would say, Justin and Joe, that should be something IndyCar drivers are embarrassed about. At least those that, again, can't seem to avoid running into one another. Knowing that we're coming off a Pocono event where you go, really, really, guys. I'll throw in one other thing here, too. And this is something that I heard from not many IndyCar drivers. I don't want to overplay this like, boy, everyone was singing the same song. Wasn't the case. But I did hear this from a small number of IndyCar drivers last weekend. And that was the shock that IndyCar did nothing after Pocono to send a message. Did nothing to sit everyone down after the race, going into Gateway, something, and said, guys, driving standards, we've got to improve. Can't do this anymore. Making asses out of ourselves. Didn't we learn last year? I mean, granted, discuss this on the show here too, but heard from just a small number of drivers saying, I'm absolutely shocked, if anything, disappointed in IndyCar for not trying to set the tone, set the stage, set some parameters. All right, we're really ratcheting up our expectations for you. You now have no, no wiggle room. The slightest kind of stupid move. We're going to have some sort of really nasty penalty for you there is a, the clause in the rule book that effectively gives the series the latitude to do whatever they want whenever they want we're going to exercise that i don't know if that's going to happen when there's a driver's meeting at WeatherTech raceway laguna seca with three drivers in a serious mathematical chance two chasing new garden but three overall definitely in the hunt for a title I don't know if they're going to deliver some sort of, and there's three drivers here with something big to win. Don't screw up their races or else we're going to black flag you, make you sit for a lap. I don't know what. (sighs) Would definitely say that if IndyCar closes the 2019 season without taking control of the stupid maneuvers. um, (laughs) So, Going into turn one at Portland, it's flat. (laughs) It's absolutely flat. And we saw folks go whistling down the inside, totally out of control, just wipe people out. Well, at Laguna Seca, there's definitely a beautifully inviting inside lane. Obviously, we have the turn one at Portland, which is a right-hander. At Laguna, it is a left-hander. It's downhill, too. Even more fun. You wanted to talk about make it easy to lock your brakes and just play the bowling ball routine. It is just waiting, inviting someone to do that at Laguna. So if you thought Portland was bad, the opportunity for the same exact thing, possibly even worse, is just, (laughs) it's just, its arms are open saying, please, please. Somebody pass 15 cars all the way to the left. 
on the inside where there's no grip on lap one of the season finale, double points, please. Just saying, if IndyCar doesn't step in and step up and truly make it clear of how nasty the repercussions will be if this kind of nonsense continues, uh, you lose a lot of credibility. Um, you lose a lot. I think there's already been a loss. That's a lot that is lost. Uh, I think it's pretty much gone if they don't do anything here. Let's go to Todd Hutchins says one thing that was a standout at Portland was passing tons of passing, passing in places that you normally don't see at an NTT IndyCar series race at PIR going out of turns three and into four in the short shoot and six, seven and eight into the back straight and on the back straight fun to watch was his tire choice or some great driving. Those red Firestones were fast for a while. Then the cars with blacks would catch them. I think Firestone again got it right to create some great racing on the track. I think you absolutely nailed the answer to your own question, Todd. We did see that there was a certain drop-off for sure that would take place with the Reds, Colton Herta being the perfect example of that, but we saw that with a number of other drivers. So one other dynamic that happened too, and it wasn't restricted to reds. It was blacks as well. Um, one thing that has happened that continues to happen is when drivers, while doing tire testing, complain about something that isn't working very well with the tire. I hear from many drivers, high-quality drivers, saying that the solution, at least as they feel through the steering wheel, is to go softer and softer. So constantly solving whichever problems through softer compounds. Okay. As we saw, and as I listened to a number of drivers and engineers tell me immediately after the Portland race, boy, you lock up that left front tire a little bit, not a lot, not some huge billowing smoke for 200 feet, but just what you might consider a fairly minor or innocent lockup that really would hurt you and would stick with you for the rest of the stint. So seemed Todd that it wasn't just tires going off and the timing being as such where you could then create some passing because one driver was now having power down traction issues or braking or otherwise, but you make a slight mistake under braking and that too would be a stint long penalty. Let's go to Matt Roche. This is our section about how to deal with bad behavior here. Matt says, not fond of future penalties, but is it time to consider for lap one shunts, such as maybe a start from pit lane for the next road course race, if deemed responsible for the accident, or maybe a grid penalty if you clearly punt someone later, and a multi-lap penalty if you can keep going, but the one that you hit cannot. And I'm going to read off the other ones here because we've got a number like this. Chris Ward says, it's been said you can't win a race in the first turn, but you sure can lose it. What can be done to further penalize the bonsai moves that ruin a race for other competitors and burn money for owners? Andy Bauer says, Graham Ray Hall is not a bad racer. That said, does the series need to consider grid penalties at the next race for lap one incidents caused by temporary insanity, especially when it takes 15% of the race distance to clean up? 
Stephen Straub says, MP, we've seen Ray Hall hit people from behind in lap one incident several times over the past two seasons. Last year, he took out Simon Pagano in a similar incident at Long Beach. Do you think IndyCar should start levying monetary fines against drivers and teams or deduct championship points for such avoidable incidents? Would be interesting to get some perspective on this. The monetary side, I know, would anger and piss drivers off. But most of them make enough and or have enough to where while they would not be happy, it would not be a deterrent unless it was an, an insane number, $500,000, something like that. That's a number most drivers would think about, quarter million. That's not realistic, though. No driver would willfully submit to that. The only thing I can think of, and I'm with all of you on the not being fond of grid penalties for the next race, I, I, I'm not down with that. What I do think might be interesting is a one-lap deficit. Imagine that. Could be, how's this? The grid penalty thing, hated it when we did it with engine changes and whatnot. I just think it's ridiculous. Wait a minute. I'm at the race. I just watched the guy qualify 10th, and now you're telling me he's starting 15th for something he did at a race I wasn't at? Huh? What I think might be interesting is to levy some sort of one-lap penalty. Now, imagine that. Instead of it being simply a case of a grid penalty that might be confusing, maybe this would be confusing too. Maybe my logic is off. I like the idea of a penalty that you really have to think about. If I'm going to go whistling down the inside, low percentage move, and just pray that it all works out, and it doesn't, Maybe knowing that if I am not careful, if I don't use good judgment, I'm going to, A, I'm going to ruin my race here. I'm willing to accept that. But what if I effectively ruin my next race? What if I take the start, roll towards the green flag and go racing, but I'm instantly docked one lap? So I have to do some pretty creative things to try and get myself out of the hole I am in. Could be done. I think there's, if we want to talk about redemption, certainly there could be something where a team is like, all right, we automatically are in an alternate strategy. We're having to do some very interesting things. Pray for yellows to stay out and yada, yada. You know, maybe we can... Maybe we can recover from this, but maybe we can't. Maybe there's a grade to this. If it's so egregious, maybe it's two laps. Just something where you go, look, if you want to screw yourself in this race and take yourself out and take others out, okay, that's your choice. The 30-second penalty, I believe, Graham was assessed or whomever was assessed. Um. I might be fuzzy on this a little bit, but I believe that there was some sort of penalty assessed as well. Where Maybe it was Hunter Ray or a drive-through. Again, I don't know what it was. But it was just something where you go, yeah, the penalty has already been incurred. 
if you really want to send a message, you go, okay, well, you know, if you do it here and it doesn't work out, well, yeah, you know, you're out of the race. Oops. Well, guess what? You're going to carry this with you. You're really going to pay. You taking yourself out, that's not a penalty for your bad decision-making because others were affected. That's just a byproduct of your bad decision. A true penalty to me, something where you go, you are being held accountable. I think that has to happen when things are going well. And like I said, the grid penalty, I always thought those was just weird and was were hard to explain. This, I think... You know, I think there could be, I don't know if it's some sort of chant of shame, shame, shame when the driver goes by the first time. I don't know if it's something you put on the car. Maybe I think of uh, some of the things I've seen recently where, you know, judges are levying whatever decision on a person who's done something. I just read something about uh, two people who are uh, trying to pretend to be military veterans to benefit from it somehow and. Uh, among the various things that the judge handed down, one of them was standing outside with a sign saying that they were a fraud and uh, they didn't, you know, all kinds of things and just publicly shaming the person. I don't know if publicly shaming a driver by making them carry some sort of sticker or something that says I'm starting two laps down because of the stupid move I tried to pull at wherever. But I do like the idea of like, okay, you just created a huge hole for the folks that you knocked out. Um, you took yourself out. That was voluntary. We need to do something to penalize you that is involuntary. You have no choice over this. So not sure if I'm right. Not sure if it's a fully formed idea. It's one that came to mind, though. So as always, give me your feedback if you think I'm onto something or if you think I am. As happens more often than not. Speaking out of my backside, let's go to Nathan Cook, who says, Marshall, with IndyCar's head engineer leaving, what does this mean for car development? Will this delay the AeroScreen hybrid system and the 2022 car? Thanks for asking this, Nathan. I do know that after posting the story that Jeff Horton was fired by IndyCar at the beginning of last week, uh, the story that I ran was truly a straight news thing this thing happened this is the stuff the guy was in charge of they're looking for someone new and there were a number of you who rightfully said great we got the what and the how we didn't get the why and that's because my source at indycar actually there were two sources but nonetheless three sources but nonetheless my main source at indycar that gave me the download on what happened Uh, did not want to speak on the record, did not want those things put in print, and so that's why a straight news story was delivered. I mentioned this, Nathan, because it is actually tied to your question. Um, While I won't get into the things I was asked to not get into, uh, I did mention, I think, to one person who asked on social media that it just wasn't a good fit. Uh, between Jeff Horton and IndyCar's modern leadership. Um, I would say that's very much the thing to stand on here. Uh, Jeff Horton, who I know is highly regarded, I'm even told he could be hired back on a contract basis, help out with this thing, help out with that thing. Uh, Just the things that I heard was 
as you mentioned, could this delay some things? I believe the reason that there was a parting of ways is that there was a concern that with him in place, there could be delays. And so not saying that's accurate, and I'm not betraying what I was asked to keep to myself, just of some other things that I've heard, just heard that maybe there was a belief that really expediting some of these things would be best placed in the hands of someone else and that they might even actually want to bring Jeff back to help with those things, just not in the top tier, looking down, managing all things capacity. So just think in general here, Nathan, the way to view this change is whomever is going to be coming in uh, will probably be asked to fast track a lot of things that maybe some felt weren't on that fast track and needed to be. Let's get to another theme that was interesting last weekend, and this was James Hinchcliffe being confirmed by one outlet, actually by a good friend, David Melcher. James Hinchcliffe being confirmed. So let's go to John Foreman and Ryan Terpster. Ryan, once again, thank you for the 413 questions you sent in. John says, some media sources are, quote, reporting Hinch returning to spam next year, but no word yet from the team himself yourself or any other indycar specific media outlet can you comment in general on media outlets not maintaining embargoes as well as reporting news without sources um then we have ryan who says to have real confirmation now that hinch is staying i've heard rumors about formation of a new team with hinch as the driver uh daily matched hinch in qualifying uh, and in being taken out by an rll car have to be honest, but hashtag me personally, I put daily in the second seat. Sons award. Let's go to John's here to start. I I can't stop anyone from reporting something at an outlet I don't work at, nor can I really stop anything at the ones that I do. But certainly there was a reason why you have not seen a matching report from myself or robin miller at racer on this topic and it's not because we're sleeping it's not because we aren't doing our job it's not because we missed uh this being reported um i would not question david's sourcing we did see quotes directly from team co-owner now in a three-way partnership with mclaren and rick peterson Uh, We did see direct quotes from Sam Schmidt saying he's coming back. No idea why there's been speculation about that. Um, Without betraying sources, I can tell you, John, that I spent 50 minutes on the phone Monday asking the question to start have I just missed something here? Um, am I, my antenna is not attuned and was told no. Um, not reporting on this as being fact is you're, you're good. So I'll leave that there. So yeah, uh, not questioning David, whatever David writes or wrote uh, again he's excellent at what he does um as a friend it's not my place to say whether he's right or wrong i'm just saying that while david chose to 
file that story. And Sam did give him quotes supporting the saying, yep, coming back, everything's all good. Um, I am intentionally, and I know Robin, because we discussed it, have intentionally not reported that. And there's a reason. Uh, you mentioned here about outlets not maintaining embargoes. Um, you know, at least on the IndyCar side, hasn't really been a thing. There was one guy who worked for one outlet uh, who then left that outlet and went to work elsewhere within the within the general paddock um, who is renowned for not maintaining embargoes. And then his patented response would be, oh, well, I already knew it. So that, you know, after <laughs> after being invited into an embargo or being informed that uh, some embargoed news was coming out would then publish uh, their own story and then kept coming back to the default of, oh, well, I already knew it, which nobody believed because nobody told that would tell that person anything under embargo, much less tell them anything really juicy and scoopy, not a word. Um, so that person stopped being told everything by everyone. Um, as for reporting without quote, or as for reporting news without sources, I have to admit this frustrates me a little bit because I end up filing a few too many stories that I want to that have some form of racer has learned instead of quote from person saying the exact thing. And it's not because <laughs> didn't ask and didn't ask for it to be on the record. It's because the person said, Hey, I'm going to tell you this thing. Do not put my name on it. Um, you can say however you want. Uh, there's a rumor you heard, you learned, you believe, whatever. Do not put my name on it. And that's sometimes how things happen. Obviously, just because one person tells you something does not mean you then run and print it. Even if they say, don't put their name on it. You need to do your due diligence. You need to get at least two sources, uh, to confirm the thing before you go to print with it. Um, without again not betraying any sources i'm just sharing a little super fast background uh wrote the story about delara uh being directly involved nominated in the uh, design and building of the generation seven nascar stock car um had one source tell me it was the case said you should go check and asked some other people more directly tied to it, said, great, thank you. Everything that person told me, I then asked someone else, and that person said, yes, all of that is accurate. And the person who told it to me, it, it was a done deal. Story's ready to go. Person said, and you never spoke to me, to which I said, got it. And that's why I believe the story says, racer has learned yada 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 so on and so forth so just a little background here john in a perfect world uh, everything would be on the record um in a relatively small community like ours in indycar as i have found um there are more folks who are willing to tell you things and confirm things maybe even give you an unattributed quote but there are many who just simply do not want their name to be associated with the story, um, despite it being fully confirmed by them, etc., etc. So, um, as for the 
part here from Ryan about rumors about a new team being formed for Hinch as the driver. That was a great one. Now, what I don't know is whether that was an invention of the fine Paul Tracy or the fine, even finer Norris McDonald. I do know, and this is just story time with MP, because uh, it's 1045 now, because I did actually introduce things this morning and then had to leave, and I'm getting back to it late tonight. Um, on Monday of last week, I had a friend reach out and say, hey, I'm hearing Rick Peterson's going to start a team for Hinch using Honda so he can stay with Honda, and they're going to buy some of the old Forsyth trailers. Maybe there might be a second building somewhere in Indy, Ed Carpenter Racing's in their uh, their main old cart slash champ car building, but there might be another building that they can move into, and all this stuff is happening. And I then heard that from a lot of people and was then told, well, Paul's calling everybody, reporters here and there and everywhere saying, did you hear, did you hear, did you hear? And again, I don't know if this is an invention (laughs) in Paul's mind or if Norris heard it first from someone and then told it to Paul. All I know is that Paul likes to stir things up, as Robin says. I was just referring to this over the weekend as farm-to-table reporting, where it just really came across like, oh, hey, did you hear this rumor? No, because you just made it up. So, again, I don't know if it was made up or not. I don't know if someone truly called and said, hey, did you hear this thing? And that's they ran with it. I do know that there was clearly a desire to spread this around to as many people as possible, to maybe try and just breathe life into it. If enough people say it, it will come to life. Um, Yeah, and so, yeah, that's not happening. Um, So there you go. It's kind of funny. Farm-to-table reporting in IndyCar. Let's go to Nate Falkowitz, MP. Can you offer any thoughts uh, on what could have been the potential battery failure, whatever it might have been that led to Scott Dixon's issue in the race? And do you think there's any potential connection or relation to what happened to Santino? Really don't know, Nate. Uh, I wish I'd spent some time to reach out and see if they've taken it apart, diagnosed what it is. Could it be as simple as pounding over a curb too hard and some form of inner connection within the battery broke? I don't know. Could it be doing nothing and it still just vibrated loose and broke? Is that even the issue? Don't know. Nor can I say if they were interrelated, Uh, but we'll definitely try and follow up and find out. Tim Hubble says, MP, did Alfa Romeo unwittingly ensure that Marcus Erickson won't have an IndyCar ride next year? says, I can't see McLaren or anyone else hiring a full-time driver with a commitment that supersedes their IndyCar commitment. I'm actually surprised that SPM hired him this year, knowing this weekend's events were a possibility, and all to just sit in the Alfa Romeo garage. From what I understand, Marcus was livid over this. I do not know if he has any multi-year options with the former team formerly known as Sauber, the Alfa Romeo team. So be interesting to find out from him if this reserve driver, test driver, in case you need someone driver scenario that he is in, if it was signed for just one year this year, 
or if there's a multi-year. If it's just one year, knowing how keen he seems to be on staying in IndyCar, I would think, tend to think, he would tell the fine folks at Alfa Romeo, thanks, but no thanks when it comes to next year. Because to your point, he does have some good backers behind him. Uh, He is able to go to IndyCar teams and say, hey, I have a good financial support group behind me that will invest in driving for you. I believe now, as a result of what happened at the Spa at Belgium, the uh, Belgian Grand Prix, this will indeed be a question that gets raised. Hey, cool, whether you're bringing a sponsor or sponsors or not, if we're going to do this, we're going to do this. If you're still in some sort of weird relationship, contract, something with a Formula One team where they can yank your chain whenever they want, yeah, we're we're not so much down with that. Uh, At least for what I know for most teams that have spoken with him or he's spoken with them, they're not interested just in the ability to bring sponsors. They're going to want to go racing. They're going to want to go earn quality results, improve their team. This, I would say, is certainly something that will need to be addressed. Simon Rafi, two questions here, says, Why is there a big gap in the 2020 schedule between the first and second races? We have the race in St. Pete, and then we have three weeks to wait until Barber. As my man Robin Miller wrote, uh, a story that went up yesterday, I believe, Monday, and I'm glad he wrote it because I was just about to start writing it. Up until Friday afternoon, late Friday afternoon, there was no three-week break. It was back-to-back, St. Pete and Sebring. And with Sebring, I'm sorry, Coda in conflict the following weekend with Sebring. And that was an issue as of mid-afternoon Friday. And that got resolved. There was a call between IndyCar and Coda later Friday afternoon where this was resolved. It's a lot of interesting things going on. Uh, And so, frankly, I'm good with this break uh, just because the conflict would have been pretty ugly. That would have taken not only money out of IndyCar drivers' pockets. um, This also just would have been a fairly ugly thing, to be really honest, Simon. Uh, What, the week after the original date, I think, is Easter no, it was the uh, the Texas Motor Speedway NASCAR date. I think the weekend after that was Easter. After that, it was Barber. Then there's Long Beach coming in. Then there's, in and among all this, there's Dorna and the MotoGP race. I'd heard one of the things that was conveyed related to sticking to the Sebring weekend, the Sebring conflict weekend at Coda, is that the folks at Dorna told... Keep in mind, <laughs> MotoGP is one of only two events at Circuit of the Americas that actually brings a crowd, and we assume brings a profit. Um, I've heard from a pretty good source that they told Coda, uh, those guys in IndyCar on their weekend, cool, they can load in their stuff into the garages, but then they need to get their transporters out of there because we want to get in early and start setting up the paddock for us. And I don't think Coda would have had the ability to say no And I think IndyCar would have had to just take that in the shorts as well. So conflict with Sebring, pissing off a number of drivers and team owners who play in both paddocks. And, yeah, 
<laughs> get your transporters out of here as well. Um, it would have been ugly. So this compromise, Simon, I think, despite the gap, ends up being the best thing for everybody. Simon also says, what happened with the Lotus IndyCar engine? Was it purely a lack of money? I know the engine was actually built by Judd, who have a pretty good record. You have that nailed 100%, Simon. It was a drastic lack of money, as in barely <laughs> barely even exist money. Uh, Sebastian Bourdais and I are hopefully going to record a podcast here sometime soon talking about the ill-fated Lotus IndyCar program because as the lead driver, top driver, I realize that there are multiple drivers, Simone Di Silvestro, Oriol Servia, uh, Catherine Legg, and himself, but among those as the clear, multiple champion, etc., um, he was deeply embedded in trying to make things suck as little as possible while driving for Dragon Racing. They did end up switching to Chevy, but nonetheless... I just remember at the time Seb talking about yeah there's there's one there's one functioning engine. What do you what do you you know you mean for you? No, <laughs> they got one engine that currently is capable of running because so many others have broken. Okay, and where is this being tended to? In the back of one of the transporters. They're building up a motor. No clean room. No anything. This is just like old school 1980s in the dirt, you know, kind of, yeah, cowboy stuff. And it wasn't because the folks at Judd weren't good. Trust me, give the Judd family a a proper budget, they'd build a competitive motor. Uh, This was just being woefully let down by Danny Bahar, the former head of Lotus, who was just a clown, just a clown. Uh, I might have mentioned this before. This is a great, just super short note from Randy Bernard back in the day when this was all going down. Told myself, told Robin, yeah, I was at wherever it was meeting with Danny Bahar, and he said, we're going to build an engine. We're going to come join you here for 2012. Great. That's amazing. Fantastic. Randy then mentioned, oh, by the way, we're, we're, gonna this is a year or two beforehand whatever the exact timing was we're gonna do manufacturer aero kits where you can do your own stylized bodywork and it will just increase the branding as well and this is how much this is how many millions we think that's gonna cost oh we'll do that too and randy said you know post-mortem full full rose-colored glasses here 2020 being hindsight said, you know, it really felt like he said yes too quickly. Um, <laughs> not like we're just so flush with cash. We're just throwing it around. But just there was no, oh, well, let, let me go talk to the engineering group, do our due diligence, cost this out, come back to you. You've projected it's this amount. Let us see if that jives with what we believe we can do it for. Just said yes right on the spot, like someone just randomly ordering things out of a catalog, maybe not ever fully intending to pay for it. Obviously, the air kits fell through, didn't happen in 2012, but just an interesting little anecdote that turned out to be spot on with 
Bahar and Lotus's approach to being an IndyCar. And yeah, they said, sure, yeah, you bet. And then it came down to what is, <laughs> what's, give us the amount it would take for everything to collapse and fail. And then we're going to give you about $3 more than that. And that's what happened. Uh, it was bad, really bad. Let's go to two questions. And I think we might have had more. I just picked these two. Uh, this is our pal Jerry Sudeth. And also, thanks again to the return to the from the Reddit IndyCar group uh, from the user pivot underscore chart. Jerry says, Marshall, do you know how much, if any, of ABC Supply's diminished role in the sport led to the cancellation of the Pocono race? And from pivot underscore chart, is it just a coincidence that ABC pulls out of Foyt at the same time the ABC sponsored race at Pocono is pulled off the schedule? Uh, no, not a coincidence. The reason being is the Foyt team and ABC did not announce that they were splitting. That's something that I heard um, with confirmation, with no question to its accuracy. I think the Monday of Portland, um, it was the main thing I had coming into the weekend of can't report this beforehand. I did write two different drafts and filed those just to have them sitting in case someone else happened to hear the same thing and we needed to react quickly, but had story written awaiting quotes, awaiting the thing we wanted to do and did, which is speak to the team directly, not by phone or text, but actual, Hey, this is big, right? Not big, good, big, sad. We have a, between Robin and myself, Robin in particular, just because he goes back so far with AJ a huge amount of affinity for the team, for Larry, for you name it. So wanted to make sure, knowing that you know Robin and AJ in particular go back forever, just wanted to make sure that we spoke with many people, confirmed this, but also spoke with the team to get their thoughts on, hey, we can't not report this. We can't not do our jobs. That's what we're paid to do. We were asked, could you hold off on this? Well, I wish <laughs> I wish I could get paid the same amount. I wish, hell, I wish I could just get paid in general to do nothing but watch teams file press releases. Unfortunately, that's not what reporters do. Uh, so there was no willingness to not report. But definitely there's the ability to go to the team and say, hey, this is real. We know it's real. We're not asking if it's real because we know it's real. We have to do our jobs. Is there a way we can do this with the least amount of disruption or negativity, whatever blowback? And the team came back and said, yes. Uh, if you could wait a little bit, we'd like to get a quote from chairman of abc and some other things as well we also on saturday i'm just sharing a little bit of the background i guess story-wise we also had antoine hubert unfortunately who was killed on saturday when we were expecting this to go up uh would actually agreed on a time we were going to put this up saturday with the team um then said okay we're going to go ahead and we all collectively agreed that no we're going to wait till sunday at noon um we don't want this 
sad, bad thing that's happening in IndyCar to take any, any focus away um, from the young Frenchman who lost his life. So just keeping in mind here that this wasn't a case of timing. I think if we had not heard about it, the Foyt team would certainly wait until after the season to announce this. So uh, just a mere coincidence that the timing of us reporting this happened to be the same weekend where Pocono was announced schedule-wise that it was off. Uh, I believe I might have had one or two other people that kind of alluded to the fact or suggested that is it possible that ABC pulled out of the Foyt team as some form of retribution to IndyCar for canceling the Pocono race. And that I just thought might have been a little bit beyond reason. We're going to jeopardize the oldest team in the series and their future existence because we want to send a message to IndyCar. Yeah, not, not a chance, not ever. ABC Supply folks are as good a group and as amazing of a sponsor as IndyCar has had. So, no, nothing going on here at all. I did hear, not saying it's accurate, but I did hear that the Foyt team may have placed a call to IndyCar at the urging of ABC Supply to say, hey, we're hearing you're taking Pocono off. Don't do it. I heard that there was definitely an effort to apply some leverage to make that not happen. Can't tell you if it's true or not, but did hear that from someone who tends not to spout complete nonsense. One way or the other, ABC Supply getting out of IndyCar as a full-time sponsor. Believe they're going to be on one car for the Indy 500 with the Foyt team. Main reason I've heard is... Beyond, I would say, the obvious, the team has not been producing results for a long time. And I know Tony had a podium at Gateway and loved it. That's awesome. But I think it's one of six podiums in 15 years of sponsorship, 14 years, however many years. And one win, one win and six podiums in a decade and a half. I mean, that's something that would cause most sponsors to leave after a couple of years. Uh, the fact that they're there that long, truly amazing. Um the main reason I've heard, in addition to the lack of consistent results, is there's a new CEO, and that CEO is not a fan of racing. That's a story we had with Verizon pulling out. It's the reason we had with Target pulling out. Um, and it sounds like this has happened yet again. In the sport, let's see, going to grab one or two more here. Then I'm going to hit the stop button for tonight because it's 11.04 on a Tuesday. It's not even evening. It's almost, it's not too far away from Wednesday morning. And then I'll keep going Wednesday morning. Uh, let's go to Patrick Gaffney, who has two questions for us here. Actually, we'll just use those to close. Patrick says, I was thinking yesterday morning, let's go and ask a question about how Harding Steinbrenner could be closing its doors with a win and two poles and Floyd racing with terrible season after terrible season is able to keep its doors open. But now I guess the question is, who is more likely to be around next year, Foyt or Harding Steinbrenner? Also asks, who is going to be around in three years? Will ABC be pulling back 
on its other IndyCar things like hospitality tents and sponsorship of races. I would say, Patrick, that ABC Supply leaving as the primary sponsor of the Foyt team would absolutely coincide with pulling everything else. Uh, I'm struggling to think of a scenario where a sponsor went from spending all kinds of millions to be associated with a team to stopping that, but still doing some hospitality and other race event sponsorship. Um, Yeah. Can't really think of any scenarios where that would happen. I think we're, well, I shouldn't say, I think I know the Foyt team is going to be back next year. That's not a question. The Harding Steinbrenner is still definitely a question. I hate that it's a question, but they are and have been working on financial fumes for a while now. I believe um, young George Steinbrenner's father, Hank, has been putting in some money behind the scenes. Robin Miller's written about that in the mailbag. We know that Sean Jones, his stepfather, has certainly, you know, tried to help on that end, find money, you know, and spend some money as well. Mike Harding has spent some money this year, too. They have been shafted by a sponsor. Uh, Not their fault, just shafted. And so they're doing their best. Uh, What we've seen is it's a pretty amazing little team. Really is. There's some really strong veterans there working on the cars, engineering. The Andretti Technologies angle has been really transformational for them. What I hope we're going to hear is that the team will continue to exist just with a different driver next year. Uh, That's my hope, knowing that they could potentially be hired and run Colton at Andretti Autosport, their fifth full-time car, That wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. Folks staying employed, good people staying employed. I like that idea, but not as much as Harding Steinbrenner, or maybe just Harding, if Steinbrenner ends up partnering with uh, Andretti on the entry for Colton. However it shapes up, I'd really hate to see the team lose, I'm sorry, the series lose a team and potentially lose one car on the grid. Uh, my fear is if young George Steinbrenner and the Steinbrenner family does indeed go back to an Andretti dash Steinbrenner entry, which they had with Colton and Indy lights for two years. I'm concerned about Mike Harding on his own continuing to be an IndyCar team owner. I think it really would have to be a case of Michael Andretti doing a deal, finding a driver. I guess you could say uh, the sixth by association Andretti entry, Um, basically place a funded driver in that seat. One thing I can tell you for sure, Patrick, is with Colton headed to Andretti Autosport and the strong likelihood of George Steinbrenner going with him, Mike Harding will not be spending a penny to run that IndyCar team. We know that's just not reality. So for it to continue, provided these things happen that I mentioned, Colton moving, which we fully expect to be confirmed at some some point in time here, and potentially George Steinbrenner going with him, um, for that 88 Honda entry to continue, it's going to need someone to pay fully for the opportunity. 
not the uh, skate by race to race as they have been forced to do this year, unfortunately. Patrick also says our final question here before I hit the pause button for the night. He says, as the father of a seven-year-old daughter, I really miss having female drivers in IndyCar that I could show my daughter. He asks, how have we gone from the several we had a few years ago to just one in the Indy 500, that being Pippa Mann and the Clausen Marshall team here? Uh, I ask myself the same question, Patrick. I really do on a semi-regular basis, <laughs> along with why do we have no drivers of color, male or female? Um, how is the series bereft of women uh, while knowing that there are some really awesome women who can compete, have competed, would be awesome? Why is Simona De Silvestro relegated to Australia driving supercars that she I don't think she really likes or feels you know attuned with and yet that's the place where she's able to find folks that want to pay her to be a professional race car driver therefore that's where she races along with a little bit of IMSA as well I just don't see any short-term solutions here Patrick and I don't mean, hey, there could be two women in the Indy 500 next year. Again, that would be great. But I mean actual and the full-time entry driven by, name the woman. I just don't see any real answers as to how that gets fixed. Unless the pretty awesome, new, but pretty awesome Jackie Heinricher, who is a co-entrant with Michael Shank in IMSA, decides that, you know what, this Catherine Leg woman yeah, we want to get her back into IndyCar. Or name some of the young, really impressive women that ran in the top two, maybe three of the W Series. Or, again, I'm, I'm hoping, I shouldn't say hoping, I'd love to rattle off a number of names, not just one, but a number of names of young women who are on the road to Indy and truly been able to be there for a little while and gain the same exact development and amplification of their skills as all of the young men have. It's just not really the case. Um, Ayla Agron, as well as someone that we hoped, would be moving on up and doing some badass things. I can't tell you, Patrick, what might happen next year. Could... Again, maybe a couple of the women who competed in the W Series and showed talent and aptitude, could they hopefully maybe come across and do the Indy Pro 2000 Series, maybe even Indy Lights? I would really hope so. Uh, Speed-wise, the cars that they drove in the W Series, quick, but not crazy quick. Uh, Indy Lights would certainly be a step up from those, so... Uh, the jumping from the W Series straight into IndyCar, not really a thing. Uh, there's still an, another level to train at, I would say. I just don't see the immediate answer. And maybe it's just, you know, we're in a uh, a shallow period now where there's not a lot of women really headed towards open wheel. 
It's a problem. I mean, I would say a true problem. It's not something where I can say blame, hey, this person here, that organization there, they're directly at fault. Would certainly say, though, that of all the things IndyCar needs to look at, along with the weekly question of when is IndyCar coming out with some sort of game or something, the boy, we sure look mighty male and mighty white. And again, I realize we have drivers of different ethnicities within the series, Takuma Sato uh, being one that stands out, obviously. But uh, just saying, as we seem to work our way towards a more representative world in so many ways, yeah, Patrick, I can absolutely see how being there with your daughter and having last weekend Catherine Leg there, but driving this, no disrespect, but the stupid two-seater. Um, <laughs> talk about a waste of talent. Catherine should, if we're talking capabilities, should absolutely be in an IndyCar. car. I can't tell you where she would be on the grid. I don't know. Depends on the team. Depends on the quality of equipment. That woman can drive. We, it's been proven. There's no question. Simona De Silvestro. Um, you know, there's a lot of names that get thrown around. Boy, this, this guy really deserves a ride. Well, I'm just saying, if we're going to use the word deserves, Simona had one, what, one year, I believe at KV when they were, you know, pretty somewhat decent and had a definite solid year. It's not a woman who had two or three years in a team flush with cash and able to really build upon her talent year by year in an organization that was built to do so, had the means to do so. Realize that she's gotten a few years older now, hopefully matured even more. I don't think farting around in Australian supercars has helped her in any way, but yeah, just saying. Anytime that I hear that driver X guy who deserves to be in a car full-time, okay, got it. Sure wish Simona's name was brought up. Sure wish Catherine's name was brought up. And the list isn't super deep after that. But, yeah. Big, big hole in IndyCar's game right now, Patrick. And, unfortunately, it also extends down into the road to Indy as well. And that's the thing that concerns me. Shouldn't be the case, but it is the case. Um, And, you know, imagine a day where we have young women of color as well and just you know a multi-ethnic IndyCar series that would be a pretty amazing thing uh, because it's weird just to close here living where I do in the Bay Area I realize it might be very different from wherever you live but <laughs> um, going to my local Starbucks it is not a thing where people who all look the same are standing in line. It's not a bunch of folks that look like me. It's a bunch of really different folks. Uh, There's more black hair and brown hair than blonde hair. There are folks from the 23andMe DNA tests on the folks standing in line with me at Starbucks would be really interesting. B 
because I tell you what, it sure as heck isn't all Eurocentric descended and whatnot. It's folks from everywhere. And at least for me, that's the world I've really only known because that's what I've grown up in. And as I've seen that kind of become more of a blueprint of what we're seeing uh, throughout the rest of the country of, oh, yeah, cool. So, you know, it's more representative of the multicultural country that was founded and what we are. It's just always weird for me to go to an IndyCar race and go, huh, all right. Well, it's a big adjustment from the world that I live in at home. So maybe I'm being selfish can't say if my desires are right or wrong here patrick but yeah i would definitely love to one day in my lifetime go to an indycar race and at least within the paddock and definitely within those who are driving the cars say cool (laughs) this is a little more representative of the world that i've known which doesn't by and large all look the same so all right I'm going to shut up. It's 11.18, and I'll be back to you in the morning, and we're going to pick up with Sam Yoder, who asks a question that we addressed with Jack Harvey and had a good old, good old fun time. Speak to you in the morning.